So we're going to focus on 9, 20 through 27 this morning. After studying the 70-year prophecy in Jeremiah, David knew that the Babylonian exile, I'm just giving you a little context, he knew that the Babylonian exile was near its end and that Israel, his people, were about to return home to Jerusalem. Uh, As his excitement grew, he turned to the Lord in prayer. In verses 4 through 19, uh, we saw that his prayer had three components. Do you remember what they were from last Sunday? They were adoration, confession, and petition. Uh, In the petition part, Daniel pleaded with God for mercy and asked that he restore the city of God, Jerusalem, that he restore the sanctuary of God, that's the temple in Jerusalem, and uh, the people of God, his people, the Israelites. So that's what he petitioned the Lord for, mercy for a total restoration. This morning, uh, I'm happy to announce and excited to announce that, that we are going to look at and study God's answer to Daniel's prayer, which came in a vision. Uh, the vision basically lays out God's program for Israel, His prophetic program or the future for Israel Uh, It literally provides a prophetic timeline that spans from Daniel's day to the final and total restoration of his people Israel. Uh, Biblical scholars through the ages uh, have noted how exceptional this section is in terms of biblical prophecy. Many have called it the backbone of prophecy I like what David Jeremiah called it. He called it the backbone of messianic prophecy. That would be prophecy uh, that is given uh, in relation to Jesus, the Messiah. H.A. Ironside said it's the greatest of all time prophecies. That's a pretty bold statement. H.C. Leopold Leopold writes that certain verses in this prophecy unroll a panorama of history that is without parallel even in the sacred scriptures. Philip R. Newell uh, calls, calls this section the greatest chapter in the book of Daniel and one of the greatest of the entire Bible. Um, interestingly, the famous physicist, uh, and he was a philosopher too in, in these things, but Sir Isaac Newton... Uh, scientist, I think that's probably how we know him, but Sir Isaac Newton believed that we could stake the truth of Christianity, the entire religion of Christianity, the gospel itself, that we could stake Christianity, the gospel, all of that upon this prophecy alone. This is one of the smartest, most intelligent men to ever live. Obviously, a devout Christian, because I can't imagine a atheistic scientist making such a claim. You could basically stake Christianity upon what we are about to look at alone. And the way that I've divided this text, we're going to look at three things this morning. The setting, the salutation, and the 77s. That's the prophecy itself. Okay? 
So hopefully you're ready to uh, follow along in your Bibles, take some notes. Um, I will just add as a disclaimer, this was probably the most difficult sermon I've ever had to write as a pastor. And I think it's because of the nature of the text. It's uh, very, very complex. And, um, and of course, I, I would probably begin by saying that there are several interpretations of it, which means there are other eschatologies, end times views based on this text. And I have one in particular that I've drawn from the text, but you may not agree with everything that I say uh, because you might have a different view of the end times eschatology. And that's okay. These are, these are what we're talking about today. These are not things that, that we divide over, that we fight on top of hills for. We fight on top of hills for justification by faith alone, the gospel the things of the gospel, not necessarily how Jesus comes back and how it all works out. But I have a pretty deep conviction about uh, what I saw here and what I believe about this text. And I, I tell you, this thing, it, I've got 30 hours into this sermon, so um, Hallmark cards, uh, back massages at the local massage parlor would be good because I tell you what, man, my back was whistling Dixie after sitting in that chair for 30 hours. Maybe some kind of reward would be good, but then again, you're thinking every two weeks, the first and 15th, you get a reward. Uh, so maybe that doesn't work. Um, but uh, I, I just have to tell you, it was very, very challenging and hard. And my wife kept saying, are you finished yet? Yes. And then I'd come back to the chair. Um, but I have to say that as challenging as this text is, and I can see why a lot of pastors avoid the book of Daniel and Revelation and these other books, as challenging as it, as it was and as it is, it was still such a great joy to spend the time in fellowship with the Lord, working to understand what He has predicted and what has come to pass. So, great stuff. All right, so I feel like I just, you know, we can go to lunch. The setting, verses 20 through 22a. That is our first section. Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he says this, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, comma, or dot, dot, dot. So Daniel was in prayer confessing his sins and the, the sins of his people and pleading with God for mercy when the angel Gabriel came to him or appeared to him. He was able to identify the angel as Gabriel because of his previous encounter with him, chapter 8, verse 16. So he knew who he was. He saw Gabriel come in swift Flight is how it is put in the ESV. Can you imagine what this scene must have been like? That you're actually praying and, and pleading with God for mercy and forgiveness and restoration for you and your people. You're in exile. You're in a difficult situation. And you're praying for these things. And then, you know, you see this sort of come flying in. And I, I envision like an eagle... As it, as it darts in upon prey, and then right before it gets to its prey, it kind of throws its wings into reverse and grabs, or you've seen that when they land on a branch. 
I, I don't know what this looked like, but that's how I envision it. And it must have been amazing just to see Gabriel come in. And there's nothing here that says that he had wings, but it says that he came in swift flight. So I think that that obviously points to the fact that he has wings. But it must have been just a sight. Can you imagine just praying and you're praying for mercy and you've got this deep heartfelt pray, prayer and then bam, this, this happens right before your, your very eyes. It must have been quite a sight, extraordinary. Someone once recited Daniel's prayer, you know, verses 14 through 19. Someone once recited it in Hebrew and timed it at about three minutes. So someone actually took the prayer and, and recited every word and sentence in it, and it took, in the original language, and it took about three minutes. That means, or it could very well mean, that it took Gabriel three minutes to get from the throne of God to Daniel's residence in Babylon. Do you ever consider that? It's pretty amazing. No wonder Daniel said Gabriel came in swift flight. It wasn't just that he saw him fly in very quickly, but he wasn't even finished with his prayer and Gabriel was there. Three minutes. I like what uh, the Messianic or Jewish Christian scholar Arno Gabalin wrote. He said, heaven is not far away. There is no space and distance for God. Of course, we feel that there is at times, right? I feel like there's this great chasm between me and the Lord because when I pray, I don't see the answers to prayer and these things. We feel that way. But he says, there is no space and distance for God. What an encouragement to prayer this ought to be to God's people. The moment we pray in the Spirit and in His name, our voices are heard in the highest heaven. (laughs) It also says that Gabriel arrived during the time of the evening sacrifice. The Jews, and we've covered this, but the Jews sacrificed two lambs per day, one in the morning, one in the evening, and evening was a little different than our evening. Uh, It was earlier. The evening sacrificed at this time took place or would have taken place at 3 p.m. That would be the ninth hour. Okay, so Gabriel comes in, comes in and comes into the presence of him very quickly at roughly 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, it is unlikely that the Jews were permitted to make sacrifices to their God during the Babylonian captivity. Plus, sacrifices were to be offered at the temple in Jerusalem, not wherever they wanted. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple during his third invasion, uh, these things have, have taken place. And we know that the Jews, the Judeans at this time, they're not, even in, they're not even in Jerusalem where the temple would have been. So there's really no way that they would have been able to, to maintain their religion in the way that they did prior to the exile and destruction of the city. Right? They, didn't have, they weren't in the place where the sacrifice would have taken place. And if they had been, there was no temple. Have you ever wondered why Jews today do not sacrifice animals, why they don't do what they used to do. It's because they don't have a temple. (laughs) That's why they don't do it. The captivity and disappearance or destruction of the temple forced devout 
Jews like Daniel to improvise. Instead of offering sacrifices in the mornings and evenings, he spent time in prayer during those times of sacrifice. Isn't that what we're seeing in the text? Or he's praying during the time of the sacrifice. The times of sacrifice, morning, evening, became times of prayer. I find it incredible that there's a, I don't know if you've ever pondered this or not, but that Jesus, the Lamb of God, died on the cross during the evening sacrifice at the ninth hour, three o'clock. I mean, God does things strategically. He does. I think that's just amazing that He, the Lamb of God, dies when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered at 3 p.m. It's not a coincidence. It's how God has ordained things. So, again, Daniel is in prayer. It's roughly 3 o'clock, the evening sacrifice time. Gabriel comes in swift flight, and maybe we would say he interrupts his prayer or he appears in his prayer. I don't know how that worked out, but that's when this happens. That is the setting. Second, or number two, the salutation. This would be the greeting, right? Verses 22b through 23. We'll pick it up at 22b first. Oh, Daniel... This is how he greets Daniel. Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Gabriel greeted Daniel and explained why he had come swiftly, why he had come very quickly. He came to give Daniel insight and understanding concerning Israel's desolations and future. That's basically what Daniel was after, right? He was praying for mercy, but what he wanted to know is when will all of these things end for your people? Simply put, Gabriel came to deliver God's answer to Daniel's prayer. Now, this wasn't the only time that Gabriel was used as God's personal messenger. 500 years later, roughly 500 years later, God sent Gabriel to tell Mary that she had been chosen to be the mother of Jesus, Luke 1, 26 and 27. He also sent Gabriel to tell Zacharias that his prayers would soon be answered and his wife Elizabeth would be with child, John the Baptist. So in Scripture, there is a pattern of God using the angel Gabriel as his personal messenger. He did it with Mary. He did it with Zacharias. He did it with Daniel. So he comes and he greets. Verse 23, at the beginning, here's what else he says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy... A word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I think this is just absolutely incredible. Gabriel explained to Daniel what happened in heaven as he began to pray for mercy. Let me paraphrase it. This is basically what Gabriel told Daniel. When you began to pray for mercy, God heard you. God loves you, and He has answered your prayer. I came as quickly as I could to give you His answer. This is basically what he's saying here. Now, I would just say, have you ever felt like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, and God isn't hearing them, God isn't answering them? How many of you have ever felt that way? I would say that probably every Christian 
has felt that way. Maybe some of you today are feeling that way. You are facing some sort of desolation or trial or tribulation or illness, difficult season, whatever it is, and you have been praying and praying, praying. Maybe you have a loved one who doesn't know Jesus and you want them to know Jesus. Their life is spiraling out of control and you've been praying and you've been praying and you've been praying and yet you are not seeing this prayer answered or you feel as if it is not even making it to heaven. Well, verse 23 tells us very plainly that God listens to His people's prayers. Why? Because He loves them. <laughs> he, may not answer, uh, he may not answer our prayers, you know, the way that, uh, that we want at times, but He still listens to them and He still answers them. He does this in accordance to His wisdom and timing. Why? Because He loves His people. So He listens to our prayers, if you're a Christian, and He answers our prayers. He may not answer them, as I said, the way you want, the way that you feel He should, but He answers them in accordance with His will and plan, and plan even for your life, for your best interest. How many of us have actually prayed for something that later we looked and said, man, I'm glad He didn't answer the prayer that way, (laughs) right? Praise God you didn't give me that. Praise God that you didn't, because I wouldn't, if I had that, I wouldn't have been able to learn what I've learned here. God knows what's best. And verse 23 just flat out tells us that He listens to His people's prayers because He loves them, and He answers His people's prayers according to His wisdom and timing because He loves them. So important for us to understand. That, that might be, with everything that we're about to look at, that might be the one thing that you needed to hear today. Because you've been praying and you are saying, what is going on? Heaven is listening. Let's look at God's answer to Daniel's prayer, right? Now we're at number three. We've seen the setting. We've seen the salutation. Now we get to look at the 77s. This is the actual vision, verses 24 through 27. This is where we'll spend most of our morning. I'm going to pick it up at verse 24a. Here's what Gabriel says, I came, now listen up, here's here's what you need to hear, here's the answer to prayer. 24a, this is where it begins, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now it's obvious that Gabriel is not referring to weeks as units of time made up of seven days, which is how we commonly use them. This would mean that the entire city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary would have been rebuilt in 490 days, okay? (laughs) The Jews and Daniel still have several years left in captivity, and it would take a long time to rebuild the city and the temple and everything after it's been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar because he literally turned it into a wasteland. So so we know that we're, we're not actually talking about, you know, a regular week. We're not talking about regular weeks here. It would have been impossible. The word for week literally means sevens. That's how it translates from Hebrew. Daniel is told that 70 sevens have been determined for his people. The question then becomes, seven of what? What are we talking about here? We're not talking about days. We find the answer by looking at the context the words are used in. Based on the reference to 70 years in verse 2, we know that Daniel has years in mind, not days. So the 70 weeks in 
24A has to be 70 sets of seven years. How many years are there in 70 sets of seven years? 490 years. Now, biblical scholars agree almost unanimously with this interpretation, and I, I believe that uh, even the you know, representatives of, of each of the eschatologies or end times views pretty much agree with that interpretation of the 70 weeks. It's 70 sets of seven. So the angel was telling Daniel that 70 sets of seven years or 490 years is required to fulfill Israel's prophetic program. By the time these 490 years run their course, God will have completed six things for Israel. They are identified in 24b. Let's look at them. Number one, to finish the transgression. This is the first and most important item on the list that must be accomplished during the 70 sets of seven years. H.C. Leopold explains the term to finish the transgression as meaning that sin will come under control and will no longer grow and flourish. For all who believe, transgression was finished at the cross. But for Israel, which rejected or who rejected Christ, the perfect consummation of the Messiah's redeeming work will not be realized until the end of the 70 sets of seven years. Regarding this time, God says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. That's Zechariah 12, 10. 13.1. So the first thing that must be accomplished is the completion or finishing of the transgression. And we should all know the Scripture well enough to know that Jesus accomplished that for all who believe. It's just that the Israelites continue today to reject Him and they haven't received it. If you're in Christ, sin has been ended for you. How wonderful. Number two... To put an end to sin, it sounds similar to the first one, but it's not. To put an end to sin, this phrase points to the time when sin will be eliminated, not only in principle, but also in practice. This can't happen until the reign of Christ during the millennium. In that day, uh, sin will have run its course in Israel, and it will be locked up never to do its evil work again. As it is written in Ezekiel 37, 23, speaking of Israel at this time, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is what's going to happen for them. For us, sin will be brought to an end. There won't be sin in this kingdom, in the millennial kingdom. Number three, huge one as well, to atone for iniquity. This is a statement of atonement. Though Christ isn't explicitly mentioned in this verse, He is the one making the atonement. He is the only one who has ever made the atonement. 
Sin is ended because of the atonement of the Messiah. Although the nation of Israel won't realize the effect of this atonement until the end of the 70 sets of seven years. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. The Messiah's death not only atones for sin, it also has the power to give the nation of Israel right standing before a holy God. Leon Wood wrote, When Christ died, He provided not only for sin to be removed, but also for righteousness to be granted. If you are a Christian, the everlasting righteousness Daniel spoke of here has already come upon you. We have obtained it by grace through faith. We are clothed in it. We are wrapped in it. But Israel, as a whole, has not yet received it because she continues to reject Messiah. At the end of the 70 sets of seven years, Christ will return and His righteousness shall be appropriated to Israel as Israel turns to Him in faith. Number five, to seal both vision and prophet. These words refer to the time in the future when all prophecies will be fulfilled, will be closed up. When Christ comes in power and establishes His kingdom, every prophecy concerning Him will become absolute reality. I think 1 Corinthians 13.9 points to this particular moment. It talks about how prophecy will end when the perfect comes. Who's the perfect or what is the perfect? The perfect is Jesus. When Jesus the perfect returns, the period of perfection will begin and there will be no need for prophecy. And it also mentions knowledge there. Pretty amazing. Number six, to anoint a most holy place. This is an interesting one. Ezekiel prophesied about a future temple. He talks about it in the last nine chapters of the book that bears his name. It is described as being grand and glorious, so much so that it is at a level that no previous temple has ever reached. This is a temple that that transcends or goes beyond the beauty and magnificence and glory of any other temple that the Jews have had. Scholars believe that this temple will exist in the millennial kingdom. Uh, They say that it will be a house of worship dedicated to the King of Kings. They refer to it as the millennial temple. Israel's temples always featured an area known as the holiest of holies or most holy place. It was a special room that only the high priest could enter. In King David's day, the Ark of the Covenant was kept in it. Daniel seems to be referring to the most holy place of this future millennial temple. When it is completed, if this is how this plays out, when it is completed, this special room, the most holy place, will be anointed. And we would say our word for anointed here would be dedicated. Now, the completion of these six things will signify the fulfillment of this prophecy. They also summarize God's whole program to bring the nation Israel the blessings He promised through His covenants. Question, did Gabriel tell Daniel when this prophecy would begin? When this prophetic clock would begin to count down and tick 
Yes, look at 25a. Know therefore, this is Gabriel telling Daniel, here's when. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Gabriel told Daniel that the decree to restore or a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem would signal the beginning of the 70 sets of seven years or 490 years. Now, there were actually four decrees issued concerning Jerusalem by these various kings that lived during this time. The first three decrees did not include a plan or provision to fully rebuild and restore Jerusalem. They focused primarily on the temple and left out things like the rest of the city and the wall around the city, a vitally important feature of that day. In fact, if your city didn't have a wall, it wasn't much of a city. You had established borders and walls back then to protect the city, and the city kind of got its glory and standing by the awesomeness of its wall and gates. In 444 B.C., the Persian king Artaxerxes, I call him old King Artichoke, King Artichoke, Artaxerxes, issued a fourth decree which would bring Jerusalem to completion. It featured a provision for the entire city, not just the temple. And we see that in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. You remember Nehemiah's, when he learned about, you know, Nehemiah the prophet, the wall builder, when he learned about how the city was near completion, but it had no walls. The walls were still in in rubble, and he wept, and he prayed, and he sought the Lord for wisdom, and the Lord gave him him favor with King Artichoke, Artaxerxes, and he goes and says, man, we need to do something about this. And the king not only agrees with him, but he sends them as the overseer of the project and funds the project. (laughs) Pretty amazing. This fourth decree involved a full restoration of the city. And because of this, scholars believe the 70 sets of seven years began the day it was issued, March 5th, 444 B.C. From this day forward, the prophetic clock began to tick, began to count down. Did Gabriel tell Daniel when this prophecy would end, when it would close? Yes. Look at 25b. He says, it would go from the giving of the decree to 25b, the coming of the anointed one, a prince. There's when it'll end. This prophetic schedule will end with the appearance of an anointed one, a prince. This refers to Christ himself. God the Father anointed Christ with the Spirit at the time of his water baptism, Acts 10.38. But the anointing referred to here is the anointing of Christ as the prince or ruler in his kingdom. The prophecy then ends not with the first advent of Christ, the first coming, as some suggest, but with the second advent and the establishing of the millennial kingdom. Gabriel then divides the 70 sets of seven years, 490 years, into three segments which he listed in 25C through 27. And we'll begin right here with 25C. He says, there shall be seven weeks. This is the first segment of that massive amount of time. It is a a period of 49 years. 
it covers the time it took to completely rebuild Jerusalem. And history confirms the decree went out in 444 B.C. Jerusalem was completed around 395 B.C., exactly 49 years later. (laughs) The precision is crazy. This is nuts. 25D, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again and with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. This is the second segment, a period of 434 years. It covers the time between the completion of Jerusalem to the triumphal entry of Messiah, of Christ, the Anointed One. In His triumphal entry, Christ, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, officially presented Himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. He was evidently familiar with Daniel's prophecy when on that occasion he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Luke 19.42 When we combine the seven weeks of years, 49 years, in verse 25c with the 62 weeks of years, 434 years, in verse 25d, we get what? 69 weeks of years or 483 years total. There would be 69 weeks of years or 483 years between the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. History confirms the accuracy of this prophecy because that is how much time transpired between those two events. (laughs) Right to the T. Unbelievable. So, so far we have covered 69 of the 70 weeks of years, 483 years of this prophecy. There is a twist in verse 26a. Look at it with me. Gabriel tells Daniel, and after the 62 weeks. Okay, the word after tells us that there is a period of time between the second and third segments. It represents an interval between the 69th and 70th weeks of years. A gap, if you want to call it that, a pause on the prophetic clock in a way. Now this interval, this section of time, this gap was anticipated by Christ when He prophesied the establishing of the church, Matthew 16, 18. It would be during this interval, Christ says, that He will build His church, and that is why we refer to the interval as the church age. We are currently living in this interval, the church age. We are currently living between the 69th and 70th weeks. Gabriel then identifies three things that will happen during the interval. We see them in 26b through 26d. 26b, here's the first thing we see. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Again, anointed one is a reference to Messiah. He is the anointed one. Cut off translates as killed. So... The anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be cut off or killed. Let me ask you what happened 
at Calvary. What happened to the anointed Messiah at Calvary? He was nailed to a cross and killed. He was cut off. Now notice the other detail that Gabriel includes. It says, shall have nothing. What else happened to Jesus at this time? He was rejected by Israel. His friends abandoned him. They fled from him. His clothes were taken, stripped and stolen and gambled over to see who could get his cloak and all that. The father turned his face and forsook him because the righteous one became sin. What am I telling you? While he was hanging on the cross, the Messiah, the anointed one, had nothing. He had nothing. Okay, now this takes place during the gap, during the interval. It didn't happen during the first set of weeks or the second. It happens in the interval. 26C, this is the other thing that happens during the interval. And the people, and this is fascinating. I mean, not to the cross, is it? But wow. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. The prince here is not Messiah. It's not Jesus. It's a different prince. He is called a prince because he will be a ruler. This prince is the little horn of Daniel 7, 8, the abomination that causes desolation that Jesus referred to in Matthew 24, 15, and the beast that is mentioned 17 times in Revelation 13. He is who? Antichrist. Gabriel told Daniel that before this prince appears, his people, his Roman ancestors, will come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. They will literally flood into the city and completely annihilate it. Jesus himself prophesied about this event, about the destruction of the temple as his disciples were gazing at its beauty and said, Jesus, isn't this place amazing? He says, I tell you the truth, this place is going to get totally destroyed and not one stone will remain unturned. Turned. This happens in Mark 13, 1 through 2. I don't even know if turned is a word. <laughs> turned down for what? I don't know. Why, Lord? Why does it happen? Because you get away from me. I know. Here's what's amazing. History confirms. Many of you are familiar with what happened in 70 AD. Titus Vespasian led four Roman legions to besiege and destroy Jerusalem. Interestingly, General General Titus ordered his soldiers to leave the temple intact. Don't mess with it, men. One of them apparently didn't get the memo and tossed a torch through one of the archways at the temple, causing the rich tapestries that were hanging to catch fire. The building soon became a raging inferno. The decorative gold you know, that was in the walls and everywhere, it was, this place was just layered with it. That gold melted and ran down the walls into the cracks of the stone floors. When the remains cooled, when all the rubble cooled down, a little bit of smoke popping up, but it was cool enough, what happened? Those soldiers, in their greed for wealth, overturned the stones in search of the gold, in search of the jewels. The prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled. 
Titus's soldiers not only destroyed the sanctuary, but the rest of Jerusalem, and they slaughtered one million Jews. The streets were lined and filled with blood. There were rivers of blood in Jerusalem at this time. And what actually happened in the end? This part of Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled. Verse 26d, And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Gabriel told Daniel that Israel will be at war during the interval until the prophecy is fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. Now, just consider the last 2,000 years of the interval because that's how long we've been in it. Who has made war against the Jews during this period of time? The better question is, who hasn't? I can name some of the, you know, recount and name some of the more recent ones. How about Germany? (laughs) Six million Jews slaughtered makes Titus's killing of them look like something friendly and kind. Germany, how about Egypt, Jordan, and Syria? When they combined, you have the Six-Day War in, what, 1969? They got shellacked by Israel in six days. How about Lebanon? And I'm talking about Hezbollah, the mortal enemy in the region, still there, of Israel, still attacking and causing harm. Who is at war with them today? The Palestinians, right? Rocket attacks, driving cars through bus stops, running over Jewish people, knife attacks. It's endless. Why? Because of the prophecy here. War will continue for Israel until the end. Why? Because God has decreed desolations, discipline if you want to call it that, for unrepentant Israel. All right. So far, we have covered the 69 weeks of years and the interval. Let's look at the third and final segment, the last week of years. We see it in verse 27. And I'll pick it up at 27a. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. The he in this verse is the prince of verse 26c, The Antichrist, he will make a strong covenant with Israel for one week. This week is the last week of years, Daniel's 70th week. For a period of seven years, Antichrist will make a strong covenant with Israel. He will promise them peace and security and pretty much deliver on his promises. But look at what he will do. Look at what happens at the halfway point through this seven-year period. 27b, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Antichrist will renege on his end of the deal and turn against Israel halfway through the seven years. Many people ask, well, how do you come up with a seven-year tribulation or a seven, the 70th week being one week of seven years? How do you come up with it? This is how you come up with it. Just study Daniel 9, 27. It talks about a week and it talks about 
a split in that week. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy. I can see it pretty clearly. I suppose there's other ways to look at it, and that's okay, but it's there. Antichrist will renege on his end of the deal and turn against Israel halfway through the seven years, that week. For the remaining three and a half years, he will what? He will mimic Antiochus Epiphanes, right? The pre-Christ, you know, uh, Greek emperor who put it on the Jews like you can't believe. He will mimic, he will follow in his footsteps. He will do what? Same things. He will outlaw Judaism. He will put an end to their sacrifices and offerings. He will outlaw not just Judaism, but all world religion. This is something that he does that Antiochus did not do. He will change the dates and times. He will go even further. He will place an image of himself in the temple and require the world to worship him. Because there will be another temple rebuilt, and it's not the temple of Ezekiel. And he is going to set up an image in this temple that he has committed and dedicated to the Jews, and he's essentially going to strip them of their rights at the temple and turn it into his own church. And he is going to demand that the entire world worship the image that is set up in that temple, and anyone who refuses will be killed. Gabriel tells Daniel that this lawlessness and devastating persecution, because for the Jews it really is, it is the highest level that they have ever seen or will ever see. Daniel tells, he, uh, Gabriel tells Daniel that this lawlessness and this devastating persecution will last until the decreed end or destruction is poured out on the desolator, on Antichrist. So according to verse 27, the last week of years, the 70th week, which is still yet to come, will consist of three and a half years of covenant peace and three and a half years of great, great tribulation. And I don't want to leave it there. I ask a couple of questions. How will the desolator or antichrist be destroyed? How will this horrific period be brought to an end? Do you remember what we discovered in Daniel's first vision in seven, chapter 7, verse 11? I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn, the desolator, was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. <laughs> what happens after he is destroyed? What happens after the desolator is destroyed? Daniel seven thirteen through 14, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, we learned that this has to do with the triumphal entry, but it also has to do with his return. He's coming. He will come. In fact, he, if you look at Revelation, will bring this whole thing to an end and capture Antichrist and bring him in for judgment. Hallelujah is right. Now let's summarize Daniel's third vision and wrap it up, okay? And I am unbelievably surprised that I've got time left because I have gone through maybe eight pages here. 
Maybe it's because I didn't do what Dan hates, and that's ad-lib and go off down rabbit holes. One time I did, and Jesus corrected me. Now let's summarize Daniel's third vision and wrap it up. The 70 weeks are actually 70 weeks of years, or 70 sets of seven years, 490 years. The 70 weeks of years, or 70 sets of seven years, are divided into three segments according to the text. The first segment, it covers a period of seven weeks of years, or 49 years, from the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to its completion. Fulfilled. Done. The second segment, it covers a period of 62 weeks of years or 62 sets of seven years or 434 years from the completion of Jerusalem to the triumphal entry of Christ. Fulfilled. Done. The interval, the church age, an undisclosed amount of weeks of years or years from the triumphal entry of Christ to basically the rise of Antichrist. In process, happening now as I speak. The third segment, it covers a period of one week of years or seven years from the issuing of the covenant between Antichrist and Israel to the second coming of Christ, still to come. We are anticipating this, right? That is Daniel's third vision, the 77s in a nutshell. Could we spend an enormous amount of time on it, weeks, 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 and months and months and months studying? Absolutely. Can we come to varying conclusions on the mechanism, minutiae, how it all turns out? Absolutely. I've given you my conviction and the view that I believe is accurate and true. And here's the deal. I don't want to end with that, but with this. One of the things that really blows my mind here is the predictions about the person and work of Jesus Christ that are represented in this vision. This this vision was given 500 years before Jesus was even born. And it describes His person and work, right? He would triumphantly enter Jerusalem as Israel's Messiah. He would be cut off, killed, and through his death, he would finish transgression, atone for iniquity, and provide everlasting righteousness for all who repent and accept him by grace through faith. He will return as the anointed prince to put an end to sin once and for all, to seal up all vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place in the millennial temple. I think that's how it plays out. And here's a question. Well, I actually forget about that question. These are what the things that we've seen here. These are the, the aspects of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see clearly in this prophecy the coming of the Messiah and His death and the effects of the positive effects of His death, the power of sin is destroyed, the atonement and everlasting righteousness is secured, right? That's that's just gospel. That's the gospel. And you might be thinking, well, what about the burial and resurrection? Those are components of the gospel. They're vital. You don't have a gospel without them. 
you might think or say to yourself, I didn't see them here in the text, so how can you say that the 77s is all about the gospel? You didn't see them here? Was he not cut off? Was he not killed? What happens after a person is killed? They are buried. How will Messiah be able to return after being killed and buried? How will he be able to come back and do this whole kingdom and stuff and all that? We call it resurrection. You see, here's my point. It's all here. You just have to pay close attention and look. The gospel is here. It is totally here in this prophecy that was given. In fact, I have yet to find another prophecy or any other text that presents the gospel as clearly, as lucidly as this text. Maybe that's why all the scholars are just so wooed by it and say, this is unreal. The death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, of Jesus, is here. You just have to pay attention and look carefully. And here's what truly gets me. Daniel prayed for mercy, for forgiveness, and for restoration. God answered his prayer with the gospel. You see how all these things play out is important and fascinating and awesome. But I think what's most important is that we see the person and work, the gospel, in this text, because that's the point. Daniel prays for mercy. He prays for forgiveness. He prays for restoration. God didn't give him a bunch of information about the future. He gave him the gospel. The Messiah is coming. He will be cut off. He will establish righteousness and atonement. All of these things. He's coming back, which means that he rose. He was buried. It's all here. Why? Why would God give Daniel, in response to his prayer, the gospel. I'll tell you why. Because the gospel is the expression of God's mercy and it alone can put an end to Israel's desolations. That's why. The same thing applies to us. In fact, many of us are recipients by grace through faith of the gospel. The very things that were predicted by an obvious, obviously sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-wise God. No, no one could predict the future like this. No one. You will never find it in the Quran. In fact, you'll never find it in the Book of Mormon, which claims to be Christian. They've had to change and, and adjust and edit the Book of Mormon 3,000 times because the alleged prophecies of their God hadn't come to pass. Whenever a black person put their faith in Jesus, he was supposed to turn white as snow. Better change that one. My brother's still black. You will, you will, we, I tell you what, what do you walk out with today? You walk out with a couple of things. You walk out with the gospel, but you'll walk out of here with a sense of awe and wonder because of what God has done and what He is capable of doing. Right? This is, this is what we are looking at is literally incredible. In fact, it, it, it takes me to the point of being frightened 
because our God can do this and does it. Only an all-powerful, complete... Why are we beginning to understand why Daniel referred to God as great and awesome, I think, in verse 4? <laughs> he got it. Do we? Walk out of here with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Walk out of here with a sense of awe and wonder, declaring that God, just as Daniel did, that He is great and that He is awesome.